Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. I walked into my lounge room recently to see my two-year-old daughter sitting on the couch nonchalantly, yet her eyes betrayed her cheekiness, as if it was not obvious already. You see, the wall behind her was resplendent in red, swirls and dots spread across the whitewashed wall in sprawling patterns, the unmistakable scribble of the toddler. The graffiti spread from the walls to the curtains, and then I noticed her hands and her face. Her mouth was smeared with a scarlet grimace, reminiscent of a notoriously villainous clown. I spotted the offending instrument, a tube of lipstick lying discarded on the floor. Its once pristine shape was mushed into a crimson cake of French-designed goop. And while the scene and everything that happened there was blindingly obvious, I decided to test the waters of my daughter's development and ask her a simple question, impossible for the self-aware to deny. Did you make a big mess? And here is what she had to say. Did you make a big mess? Did you scribble all over the wall with lipstick? No way! Uh, looks like it. No way! Yes, I think so. No way! No way! Is she playing a game, or is she knowingly telling a lie? She's much too little to understand what she is really saying, but it has begun, and soon she will know the difference between the truth and a lie, and more importantly, how to manipulate me with both. So what is a lie? A lie, according to Swedish psychologist and philosopher Cecilia Bock, is a statement believed by the liar to be false, made to another person with the intention that the person is deceived by that statement. Or as neuroscientist and philosopher Sam Harris puts it, a lie is to intentionally mislead others when they expect honest communication. The key point in both of these definitions is that to lie is to knowingly mislead. We might make a statement we believe to be true, only to find out later that it was actually false. That is not a lie. We were genuinely surprised to be wrong. Overstating something we assume or expect to be true, when we really have no idea, is getting closer to lying. But let's keep things relatively simple and stick to the basics. If you knowingly deceive, you're a liar. It's as simple as that. We learn to lie at a young age, maybe around four or five, even if we don't yet understand its consequences. Lying is so ingrained in our consciousness, we hardly even notice it. Little white lies creep into our daily lives. Is there any peanut butter left? My wife calls out as she pops the bread into the toaster. And I call back, I'm not sure, even though I know full well that I just scooped out the last of it with a spoon before putting the empty jar back into the cupboard. But she can't very well take me to task over this minor indiscretion when she just cancelled a lunch date with the excuse that one of her children wasn't well when really she just didn't want to see that person today. And while we've built a small empire of falsehoods and untruths to justify our existence from one day to the next, somewhere along the way, we lost track of the true significance of those little white lies, how they accrue and compound, and ultimately influence our character. One little white lie is just the beginning, lying snowballs if we let it, and its consequences are, well, troubling. There are those who suggest that lying in any form is morally and ethically wrong. One of the classic purveyors of this viewpoint is Immanuel Kant, a Prussian philosopher who lived in the 18th century. Kant was big on morals. You could say moral philosophy was his thing. He built his ideas around what he termed 
categorical imperatives. These are definitive statements that tell us how we should behave. Don't lie, for instance. Kant provides us with a thought experiment, and I'm going to borrow the paraphrasing of Nigel Warburton to explain it. It goes something like this. There's a knock at the door. It is a friend who tells you she is being chased by a knife-wielding murderer. So you let her in, and she runs upstairs to hide. Soon enough, there's another knock at the door, and you open it to see the would-be killer. He has a crazy look in his eyes and asks if your friend is in the house. You lie and tell him that she is not. But is that the right thing to do? Instinctively, it seems like it. Why would you give up your friend to a murderer? And Kant reasoned otherwise. He says it's always wrong to lie, no matter the consequences. So we simply can't judge when a lie is acceptable or when it is not, as we can never fully understand those consequences. What if we said no? Our friend went to the park and the murderer then goes to find her there. But unbeknownst to us, our friend had snuck out the back door and went to hide in the park, and there the murderer finds her. Now we're implicated in a murder. But according to our earlier definition, our lie turned out to be the truth. So did we still lie? Kant felt that it is a categorical imperative not to lie because of the intention to mislead, regardless of the consequences. And even though it turned out we weren't lying, it was our intention to lie that mattered. It doesn't feel right though. How can lying in this case be the lesser evil? Does a murderer deserve honesty? To understand why Kant felt so strongly that all lying is wrong, we need to understand his broader philosophy. You see, Kant believed humans have the intrinsic value of dignity, or free will, a rational right to make decisions. In order to live a good life and do good things, the choices we make should always be the ones which would do the least harm to others. But in order to make those decisions and weigh up the value of our choices, we need as much information as possible, and it needs to be good information. When one person lies to another, not only are they denying their own dignity, they are depriving that person of the information they need to make the right decision. And that is a betrayal of that individual's right to freedom, and nothing can be more immoral than that. So, in a complicated kind of way, Kant is arguing that telling the truth is a moral categorical imperative, as to lie is to deprive another human being of their humanity, and to use it instead to meet our own selfish ends. The would-be murderer doesn't seem like the sort of person who deserves their humanity, but Kant wasn't really interested in consequences. He was a man of action, and we can't choose a long list of edge cases, exceptions, and specific circumstances for when lying is acceptable or not. We need simple, clear rules for how to act, categorical imperatives. Life should be seen as black and white, and lying in Kant's world is always black. I probably haven't made a convincing argument for Kant's philosophy. That would take a couple of podcast episodes to really dig into the details. But most of us can agree that life is not so simple, not so cut and dry. And that's in no small part because making sense of the world around us is a constant challenge that persists throughout our lives. Our senses lie to us, our view of reality is distorted by bias and ambiguity, by not getting enough sleep or by having low blood sugar. Maintaining our grasp of reality is a challenge in the best of circumstances. Lying serves only to make our perceptions even less sound. And just as Kant argues that we have a moral right to the truth, Sam Harris argues we need those truths to make informed decisions about the world. We are all faced with many choices in life, and we should expect that what we see is what we get, so we can make the best ones. If we can't trust the information we get from others, then we can't make informed, rational choices, and the whole system collapses. Harris says, By lying, we deny our friends access to reality, and their resulting ignorance often harms them in ways we did not anticipate. 
Our friends may act on our falsehoods or fail to solve problems that could have been solved only on the basis of good information. Rather often, to lie is to infringe upon the freedom of those we care about. In his short book, Lying, Harris describes two types of lies. The bad things we do, or acts of commission as he calls it, and the good things we fail to do, acts of omission. The difference is simple, intention. An act of commission is a choice we make to betray someone. For instance, if my wife asks me, do you like this dress? And I say yes when I really don't, then I'm committing an act of commission. On the other hand, if she says, I know you like this dress, because she has mistakenly remembered a similar one which I do in fact like, and I don't correct her, then I'm committing an act of omission. I didn't lie, but I didn't exactly correct her either. The result is she has a false belief which I'm aware of, but failed to correct. And we assign a higher moral value or significance to the first case, the act of commission. But they are both forms of lying which have similar consequences. My wife wears a dress which I don't like. And such a lie, as insignificant as it may seem, denies my wife access to reality. And this reality is important. The reality of trust, which is a fundamental underpinning of all relationships. We take trust for granted until we lose it. It can't be replaced easily. Maybe it can never be truly recovered when lost. Lying erodes trust. Even if we think we have the best of intentions, because who is the lie really benefiting? I might not want to hurt my wife's feelings because she is not really asking me about the dress. She's asking me what I think about her. And I do love my wife, and I do think she's beautiful. I just don't like that dress. If I tell her the truth, then she will understand that my taste in dresses is different to hers, inferior perhaps, and she would be right. But she knows that I will tell her the truth, and if I tell her the truth about a dress, then I'll be more inclined to tell her the truth about other, much more important things. But what's the big deal, you're thinking? Just tell her you like the bloody dress. It's the right thing to do. It makes no difference to me, really. But it might make her feel a little bit happier. And how can that be a bad thing? But the problem with one little white lie is the snowball effect. Small lies lead to bigger ones. And we all tend to normalise our behaviour. White lies may seem like the lesser evil in most circumstances. But when I get away with it and justify it to myself, I begin to believe all of my lies are right. I lose sight of the true valence of lies, and soon bigger lies carry equal weight as smaller ones. I get better at lying, and better at being the worst version of myself. All of us can easily become desensitised, and our values can become distorted, if we do not hold ourselves to account to some higher moral standard. Because the truth always comes out, and if not in one lie, then in another, one that is told by someone who takes lying for granted. White lies lead to a slippery slope. And when the lie is revealed, after trust is eroded, it can never be fully restored. There always remains a little suspicion, sometimes a lot. As a true friend, one who will tell you what you want to hear, or one who will tell you the truth, what you need to hear. If I offer advice which is not genuine, then my denial of reality to the listener may set them on the wrong path, an inauthentic path. By trying to avoid a small but uncomfortable truth, we begin down a path of disrespect which leads to more discomfort, less trust, and a smaller world deprived of authenticity, honesty, and ultimately, happiness. Many years ago, I asked a friend, Do you think my singing voice is good enough to front a band? My friend was reluctant to answer, as I could see he was weighing up how to let me down gently. And just that look, the hesitation, told me all I needed to know, but it was his words which would tell me about his character. Eventually he said, 
I don't know. I don't think so. And it bristled, but I knew that he was telling me the truth. I didn't give up singing, but it at least answered the question for me and perhaps stopped me from embarrassing myself and others had I carried on that path in earnest. But the point of the story is not whether I was a good singer or, or not. It's about honesty. I valued my friend for not denying me the truth. I appreciated the respect he had shown me, and in his honesty was really kindness. Here's Sam Harris again. He says, When we presume to lie for the benefit of others, we have decided that we are the best judges of how much they should understand about their lives, about how they appear, their reputations or their prospects in the world. This is an extraordinary stance to adopt toward other human beings, and it requires justification. Unless someone is suicidal or otherwise on the brink, deciding how much he can know about himself seems the quintessence of arrogance. What attitude could be more disrespectful of those we care about? We've considered a few arguments for why we must never lie. Lying denies the rational person the right to freedom. It erodes trust and misleads others so they may follow an inauthentic path. But still, we lie all the time. These arguments are not as obvious or apparent to us as the few examples I've shared here. Most lies are harmless, or at least they appear so. And maybe lying is actually the best thing we could do in a given situation. Does it matter to me if I don't like my wife's dress, if a few words of encouragement will bolster her confidence and make her feel better as she goes out into the world? Or perhaps if my friend had told me I was a good singer, I would have sang more and got better, and as a result, the confidence that I got from that interaction could have created a self-fulfilling prophecy which altered the course of my life. Maybe lying is not so bad after all, and the anti-lies are really just over-egging the pudding. So Sally Bock offers another perspective in her 1978 book, Lying, Moral Choice in Private and Public Life. She opens by asking the questions, should physicians lie to dying patients to delay their fear and anxiety? Or should social scientists send investigators masquerading as patients to physicians in order to learn about racial and sexual biases in diagnosis and treatment? The good obtained from these lies may outweigh their harms and therefore be the morally right thing to do. What would Kant make of this conundrum? Life is grey, the lines between right and wrong are blurred, that much is certain. But we seem to have reached a point where there are indeed cases where lying is the right thing to do or at least not the worst thing given the circumstances. Cicela asks us to put our lies to the test, the test of publicity, which asks which lies, if any, would survive the appeal for justification to reasonable persons. She is asking the liar to think of the lie from the perspective of the other, and not just the person being lied to, any observing party. Given the circumstances, is it right to lie to the murderer at the door? Ask several people what they think, including those affected by the lie. Give them the so-called substitution test. If you were in that position, would you have acted this way? If the answer given by a reasonable person is yes, then the test is passed. The lie was justified. But perhaps the answer is not as straightforward. So we need to think about the alternatives to telling the lie. Let's raise the stakes and imagine a real-world scenario. Does Iraq have weapons of mass destruction? And I'm not making this political. This is merely an example from history. Saddam Hussein was a bad guy. He ordered and oversaw the deaths of millions in his own country and those of his neighbours. He'd flexed his muscles in Kuwait in the early 1990s and generally ran a campaign of terror and provocation. To see him toppled from power 
would be no bad thing. But the decision that led to the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was based on at least a gross misinterpretation of the intelligence, if not outright lies, about the true nature of Hussein's weapons and relationships with al-Qaeda. Would the decisions and the lies told in the lead-up to the Iraq war pass the test of publicity? I'll let you be the judge, but let's consider the consequences. No weapons of mass destruction were ever found. The war dragged on for years. Thousands died. Public sentiment was distrustful, angry, and the stability of society was undermined. A big lie had massive consequences, the fallout from which is still felt around the world today. The public doesn't trust politicians or so-called experts on many important issues, from climate change to economic policies. It was lies like this which led to the erosion of trust, and trust eroded as trust lost. It is clear now, if it wasn't before, that the notion of lying is a philosophical one, specifically a question for ethics as much as for morality, one of these uncomfortable trolley problem scenarios that philosophers love to cook up when no matter which way we turn we find ourselves confronted with the unsolvable. Fortunately, life doesn't ask us to make a decision one way or the other. We simply have to be, to be authentic to ourselves and try our best to stick to some core moral imperatives in order that we can all live together in something resembling harmony. Lying is one of those things that carries with it a variable level of judgment. It holds differing moral values depending on the circumstances. We have to think of what is reasonable and what we can justify. But while Harris warns us that white lies are the gateway drug to outright deceit, we must not only consider ourselves as the would-be liar, we must also reflect on our position as the one being lied to. This may have more influence over liars than we realise. Think of it this way. Are you someone who invites being lied to? My wife solicits my opinion of her dress, and I tell her what I think. She knows I'll be honest, even if it is not what she wants to hear. That's just how I'm wired, perhaps lacking in compassion at times, but I call it how I see it. But what if the roles are reversed, and I ask her what she thinks of a pair of jeans I'm trying on? If I'm overly sensitive about how I look, then if she responds in kind with something to the effect of, they're okay, but they make your bum look big. I might take her words too personally. If I allow myself to be upset and scornful of her honesty because it ruffles my feathers and hurts my fragile ego, then I'm merely teaching her to lie to me in the future. She knows instinctively to avoid that topic and to hide her true feelings. She'd prefer to let me wear the jeans which are not flattering than cop flack for telling me the truth. And so now, rather than have only my wife see me in ridiculous clothing, the whole world will, and they won't be nearly so accepting as my long-suffering wife. You can see that lying, at least in some cases, takes two to tango. The lie might just be taking the easy way out because it is the easy way out. So are you someone who invites being lied to because your ego is too fragile to handle honest feedback? Let's not let the liar off the hook entirely though. But it's worth keeping this point in mind. How you behave and react may make you more susceptible to be lied to. And you should be honest with yourself to work that one out. So let's close out the podcast with a few final thoughts on that note. We have looked at lying as something that someone does to someone else, but we can also lie to ourselves. We try to justify our behaviour or actions through excuses and hollow justifications. If we look hard enough, we don't really believe our own bullshit, and we make a choice to either tidy up our act or to keep up the charade. And the more we do this, the more we get lost in our self-induced world of falsehoods and hypocrisy. Just as we can normalise dishonesty to others, we can really get good at it ourselves. 
Take an alcoholic, for example. The first step on the path to recovery is to acknowledge that you have a problem. The alcoholic has to be honest about their habits and behaviour and take that first step toward recovery. This can be extremely difficult to do, perhaps the hardest step. Such a world of excuses and justifications has been built up over time that the truth is buried deep underneath and takes a lot of digging to find. But it is still there, unmistakable, and often painfully obvious to those on the outside. And just as lying deprives others of access to good information, lying to ourselves deprives us of the ability to make sound, rational choices, to respect ourselves and find insight in the truth. Yes, we have invented many stories. In fact, in the last episode, I encouraged people to create a narrative to fit their life, to help keep it in perspective, particularly around traumatic events. But the narrative needs to be honest, real, and authentic. You might be a good liar to yourself, but everyone else can see through it, and you deserve better, and others want better for you. And perhaps little white lies are never more insidious as when we tell them to ourselves. Just one more piece of chocolate, I'll go for a run tomorrow, we say. Just one more drink, I've had a hard week. It's not my fault they got upset, they deserved it. The lies we tell ourselves are the most dangerous lies of all. So what is the antidote to all of this lying? Simple. Tell the truth. Does it really need to be said? Here's your homework. Think about how many lies you tell yourself and others today or tomorrow. However big or small. And think about what damage those lies might be doing. How easily they come to you. And then make an effort to be more honest. Be a better version of yourself. Just give it a try and see what happens. I think you'll be surprised about how many lies you really tell in any given day and how insignificant they seem. But really think about how they make you feel and how easily you can identify them and then make a conscious decision to not lie, at least as much as possible. And if a murderer knocks on your door, don't open it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at The Here and Now Podcast or Twitter at Here Now Podcast. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with all of our latest episodes and be sure to give us a rating at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or at the email, email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.